Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Move it, Brad. Move it, Brad. Welcome to episode five of Movie Brat Bros to Palmarama, where we are looking at the films of the one take wonder, the split diopter dude, Brian De Palma. On this episode, we are looking at the 1987 movie, The Untouchables. And I had the absolute pleasure of being joined by Rich Nelson, the former host, sad to hear of the Betamax Video Club, but the current co-host of the Do You Want Me podcast, which is a fantastic podcast which looks at the relationships in movies, whether that is romantic, platonic, or anything in between. Uh, this was a lot of fun to record. It's been sitting in the bank for a while. I kind of, uh, I got a little bit busy with the podcast. And yeah, this one kind of got neglected. That's nothing to the quality of this chat. It was an absolute spanker of a chat uh if this is your first time listening if you've kind of joined the patreon because you're a fan of riches and you uh wanted to check it out because of this and what he had to say about the untouchables uh yeah what we do here is we look at the films of brian de palma and see how they chalk up against the films of um Franz ford coppola at the time and obviously season by season we'll be working through all the movie brats and all all, all of those so yeah it's a, a lot of fun but um Let's get down to it. Yeah, joining me in the split dark to this week, as I said, is Rich Nelson. So enjoy my chat and let's get movie bratting with the bros. I grew up in a tough neighborhood. Sometimes reputation follows you. Robert De Niro is Al Capone. There is violence in Chicago, of course, but not by me and not by anybody I employ. And I'll tell you why. It's not good business. Kevin Costner is Elliot Ness. I have sworn to put this man away with any and all legal means at my disposal, and I will do so. Sean Connery is Jimmy Malone. You want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. Patch the Chicago way. Just joined the Treasury Department, son. Everybody knows where the booze is. The problem isn't finding it. Let's do some good! 
the problem is who wants to cross the pond. Somebody messes with me, I'm gonna mess with him. You carry a badge? Yes. Carry a gun. Get your hands in the air! You're all under arrest. You fellas are untouchable. Is that the thing no one can get to you? Hey, everybody can be gotten to. All right, then. Drive him to the station. Anything happens, you shoot first. You understand me? Well, I'll tell you one more thing. You got an all-out price fight, you wait till the fight's over, one guy's left standing, and that's how you know who won. Just tell me, are you being careful? Careful as mice. I want to hurt the man, Malone. I want to start taking the battle to him. I want to hurt Capone. This man can finger Al Capone. This man can put Capone behind bars. Well, what's the matter? Can't you talk with a gun in your mouth? You're not to prove your methods. Yeah? Well, you're not from Chicago. I want you to find this Nancy boy, Elliot Ness. I want him dead. I want his family dead. Pictures presents a Brian De Palma film. I have forsworn myself. I have broken every law I swore to defend. I have become what I beheld, and I am content that I have done right. You got nothing, nothing. And if you were a man, you would have done it now. Never stop fighting till the fight is done. The Untouchables. On this episode, I'm getting the best men together to take down Brian De Palma. And look at his 1987 Prohibition-era crime film, The Untouchables. The man that is joining me today is the Jim Malone to my Elliot Ness, Rich Nelson of both the Betamax Video Club and Do You Want Me podcast. How are you doing today, Rich? I'm very well. Thank you for signing me up to this elite squad. I feel like uh, you know being called up from the academy. It's a yeah. real treat to be taken on. Capone. I mean, I mean, De Palma. I was going to say Capone. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a. I, I, I think they maybe share some, mm. some similarities. De Palma kind of is a, is another mm. heavy set balding man who kind of, I don't know. I imagine <laughs> can have a bit of a temper on him if it, if things don't go his own way. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I can't really speak to that. He's, uh, but he's, uh, he's an interesting guy. <laughs> all, all the same. Yes. So we'll let regular listeners will know uh, his uh, his history with all the the other brat bros. So yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, 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 it's a really hmm. fascinating, and I always love that story that it was him who wrote the the crawl for Star Wars because he said uh, hmm. uh, he said to George Lucas like it needs it needs something at the beginning. There's like kind of there's. You're missing something, or he had he had a crawl, and he's like, "This makes no fucking sense, George. Like, let me have a stab at it." And uh, yeah, and I like that there's these stories back and forth. Uh, I think like George Lucas suggested something for Mission Impossible, and like I don't know, like I think this film is one that very much seems like it could be directed by other members of the movie Brats, but I'm sure we'll get into that a bit later. It's something I've kind of um put a pin in definitely to kind of discuss later on in the chat mm. um but before we yeah before we get into this film rich what was your introduction to brian de palma as a director 
I'm, I'm going to be honest, I think it was this. Um, I, I think around the time when I was getting into to films properly in, the, in my teenage years, in, in the 90s, and um, this was one of the ones that I kind of thought I saw myself as this kind of film, not buff or anything, but kind of getting into serious films and things like The Godfather and Scarface and, and all that kind. And, and you're sitting there thinking this was the one that kind of jumped out at me a little bit. It was, um, I think that the style of it, the fact it was slightly more modern and, and, and admittedly it had the Sean Connery in it, which to a, a young James Bond fan was, uh, yeah, always a nice cross appeal. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- this was the one that kind of stuck to me. And then I think not long afterwards when, uh, when Mission Impossible came out, and in the subsequent years, seen that several times. But yeah, I think this this one is. I, I go along with this. I mean, I, I've probably seen it a lot more than Scarface or, or Mission Impossible or, or possibly Carrie. But this is probably the first and definitely my favourite. Is, is there other like De Palma films that you've have you like dipped your toe further into the De Palma back catalogue at all? Because obviously this. This film somewhat is a departure and kind of like almost like an outlier in his career in some way. Um, I, I haven't as a kind of rule. I think I, I've enjoyed a lot of the films that he's done, um, you know, this and, and Carlito's Way as well. And, and um, but then I think Mission Impossible, because of the kind of subject material, is kind of maybe the one of the more accessible ones. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and it's on probably on tv more and and i didn't really kind of get into it as much as i feel like i i could have done or should have done and and when you go through his his very long cv there's there's such a lot on there that you know people talk about as being this big kind of oh you haven't seen that oh my god what you talking you know call yourself film twitter no i don't but (laughs) it's um it is i mean it's such a fascinating cv and when you know from from your podcast and and from reading other things when you see about the the group and and as we talked about when we talked about the conversation uh-huh. you know the, the the influence that this group of guys had on each other as that kind of say measuring of each other's genitalia but they're very much pushing each other on and and you know de palma sometimes doesn't get mentioned in the same sphere because when you're up against Lucas and uh, Coppola and people like that, of course, <laughs> you know, third or fourth in that group is still third or fourth, but then compared to others, you know, it's, it's a quite a stellar run he did. And, um, you know, I always love going back and, and the ones I do have favorites and I, I probably should broaden somewhat. <laughs> What I found like fascinating about something you said with like Mission Impossible is what I found from like looking at Brian De Palma's films is rewatching that film through the lens of it being a Brian De Palma film, like because I think I grew up like knowing it as like a Tom Cruise vehicle, and like mm. I think even even like getting onto the Untouchables, I kind of saw it as like. I don't know, yeah, like a, a, a Kevin Costner and Sean Connery film. And it was interesting on this rewatch, kind of looking at it very much through that Brian De Palma lens of how, like, what are the, what are the 
the Palmerisms of the film, if, if you know what I mean, like especially like piecing it all together from stuff that he's done before and kind of there's yeah there's these ongoing tropes throughout throughout uh throughout of brian de palma film um do you, yeah do you from the de palma films you've seen have, have you have you picked up on any tropes like what do you think of when you think of a brian de palma film rich i mean it's difficult to to compare them because the the styles and and the way like when we're talking about the untouchables it feels like he's made a film from a comic book. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, it's easy to kind of think about they've made a film about Al Capone. So it's like a, a gritty documentary style or, or something like that. Whereas this, it has so much, and I, I hate the term style over substance because there is so much substance behind this film. And yet it's so, the style of it is so distinct um, with the, the score and with the, um, the, the costumes and the fact it's tailored by Giorgio Armani and everything like that. And it it seems like it's like a homage to old styles of serial storytelling in the way that say Star Wars was. But, um, you know, there's a lot when you look at how the, the music is, is quite heavily influenced, perhaps more so in like Scarface, for example, where the score there is quite, not overbearing, but it's very there. Yeah. It's not particularly subtle. Um, and here as well, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. You've got that Morricone music going on and it's really leading you along and taking you with it. Um, I, think, I mean, it's hard to say a, a trope as such, but I think th- th- there is a lot here that works. I think it, it is quite a close relation to Scarface mm-hmm. in, the, in the style. And, and the fact it is quite larger than life, it's um you know when you go to Mission Impossible and you compare it to to what came afterwards and I think they that franchise seemed to sort of lurch a little bit from the beginning you know you've gone from Brian De Palma in the first film to John Woo yes. for the second <laughs> which is you know talk about your departures there but I think um you know and and the first Mission Impossible film people go back and look at as this kind of purist spy thriller yes yeah 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 um and there was and there and there was very little of that kind of bombastic very outgoing stuff i mean of course tom cruise was still running a lot and you still had the great set pieces and the stunts but you know boil it down to there's a lot of espionage stuff there was a lot of really sort of tight scenes in there whereas in the others they've gone away from that and i think you know that isn't really here you've got good police work but a lot of it is fictionalized a lot of it is dramatized and you know and you're hinging a lot on some of the really really great performances in the film i i I think like with that first mission impossible film like those elements you're talking about are kind of from the de palma playbook because it very much focuses on like voyeurism and like the 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 choices Mm. of camera angles a lot of like pov shots and uh, De Palma's kind of known for split diopter shots, and th- this one's got like an absolute like humdinger of one when you get Kevin Costner in the foreground and um, Sean Connery in the background when they're talking in the church, like quite early on mm. in the film. And it's like he, he like you say, you saying about style over substance. I guess that is something that can like sometimes be leveled. At Brian De Palma, but like I think it's one of his saving graces as well. Because sometimes, like 
having that style, whether it's yeah, whether it's the split up to shot there and the kind of low angle he uses, or when they celebrate their dinner, they'll have their celebra- yeah, celebratory dinner and he use he like spins the camera around them, which other directors would just like fix the camera in a place or kind of like do do some do you know what I mean? Like some one two shots through the characters and stuff like that and close ups, whereas Brian De Palma is like, let's take something that could be quite boring or like, yeah, let's take something like exposition and make it a bit more like just, yeah, really amp up the style. Like let's, let's Giorgio Armani suit this, the the way this film looks somewhat. Yeah. And and in that shot in particular, you know, you're framing a dinner, which becomes something that he looks back on later as a cherished memory. So the fact that he's made that stylist, this isn't just a throwaway Polaroid. This is something that means something to him when the job is done, when he's packing all his bits away. Um, and, you know, you see them all together. You know, the, the, this is a team. It's the Untouchables. It's, you know, the, the 1930s A-team or whatever. But it's um, <laughs> it, there, there has to be that. And I think there is a huge part of why the film is so popular um, is because of the way it looks and the way it is presented. Um, I mean, it's telling a story that a lot of people kind of know roughly. It's all about Al Capone, how they how they got him into prison. But you know, the, a lot of this stuff didn't happen. A lot of it's you know very heavily made up, and yes. they don't make any kind of claims to the otherwise. This is just you know how we got there, but we're going to make this a story that you want to watch exactly. with people that you care about. So no shame, no shame. There's no, there's, there's like, they, they're happy to lean on the, like the, the scandalous as opposed to like, there's no title card at the beginning of this. This is based on a true story. It's like uh, from reading, it's like, you know, some of the, you know, these people are real, you know, Al Capone existed, Elliot Ness existed, but yeah, we're, we're, we're telling you a fantasy of, of what like what could have happened, do you know what I mean? If 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 <laughs> if real life were a film. So yeah, before we get too deep into talking about the film, can you give us a, a synopsis of what The Untouchables is all about, Rich? Um so essentially it's the story about um prohibition in the US in nineteen thirty or as we, we were getting to, to 1930, and Al Capone, everyone knows, uh, Elliot Ness is brought in from the Treasury Department as the kind of, I don't know, he's like a czar, they call it these days, where he's like a specialist they bring into, how do you bring a prosecution? How do you get all this? You're aiming at one particular guy, like a task force, if you're using modern parlance. And he quickly realises that the Chicago police at that time is heavily corrupt as a lot of police in, in film and TV is and uh, quickly realises that he needs a very small uh, group of officers to help him out. And there's a lot in this of, of chance. You know, he, he suddenly realises that uh, he hits upon Jim Malone, this very old, dyed-in-the-wool Irish cop, as his kind of... I know his conscience He's like his Jiminy cricket going through the, he's, he finds this guy and suddenly identifies as like, this is the kind of person I want to base my, my group around. So well, he even says to, um, 
I think he even, yeah, he, he even says to Jim Malone, like, uh, what are you, my mentor? And he's like, well, well yes, I am. <laughs> like, he's like, it's like the film, the film isn't, isn't shy about what it's doing with these characters and the kind of like, like you're saying, like, the, it, it, there's, no, there's no fat on it, I find. Do you know what I mean? It's two mm. hours long and there's kind of, it just whistles through and it's kind of, I don't know, it's a real flex on Brian De Palma's part that like he kind of ends this film on three just killer set pieces where it's like have this have this have this and it's like yeah it's a it's a real it's a real like you you want a big blockbuster well here you go let's have one so yeah um let me rattle off some stats about this film and then we'll get into some of our favorite scenes and some questions I've prepared so um this was released on the 3rd of June 1987 in the US with a September 18th release of the same year in the UK. The film stars Kevin Costner as Elliot Ness, Sean Connery as Jim Malone, um, Robert De Niro as Al Capone, and Andy Garcia as George... Wow, I haven't got his surname written down. What a... Uh, George Stone. Faux pas, but yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got, we got, we got an interesting... Cast. George Stone is the name of that character. Oh. Uh, we've got an interesting cast of characters. The budget for this film was twenty-five million and made one hundred and six point two million dollars. So did pretty well for for for, for itself. So, um, Rich, yeah, what are like? Is there some scenes early on in this film that you would you you you'd like to like to discuss? Like, yeah, j- jump off and let's. Let's talk about let's talk about kind of how this film opens and some of the some of the interesting stuff that happens at the start. I mean the the opening scene itself, where you know you're, you're introduced to Al Capone. He's being shaved and he's giving this kind of briefing to the press, talking about how great he is and and how he grew up and how he got into the business and and it's Robert De Niro. In strange that this role doesn't often get mentioned as as his greats, even though he is great in it. Mm-hmm. I think that that says a lot about him, really. I think when people talk about how he put on weight to play Jake Lamotta in Raging Bull, they always re- reference that was here. You know, he's he's bigger. He's he's really got himself into the into the character, and but he's still menacing. You know, we still know him from. This was pre Goodfellas, of course, but then he was Vito Corleone mm-hmm. in the days as well. So he plays Al Capone in this really menacing way that is quite believable, even when he is, you know, it's Robert De Niro. You can't escape that fact. <laughs> um, but he's the way he's waving his finger around at the barber while shaving him for, for nicking him and doing it. And you're expecting, oh, it's Al Capone, he's going to get up and cut his throat, and he probably did off camera. But you see this, and, and he's holding court, and this is the boss, this is the the guy that everyone knows. You know, we're talking in, you know, 90-odd years later in the UK, everyone who knows who Al Capone is. Yeah. And, you know, he is the big villain. He's the Darth Vader of the piece. I keep talking about Star Wars, almost like they're linked in some way. But <laughs> it cuts from him to a little girl being blown up in a bomb. I mean, just to really get how villainous this guy is and how serious 
the organised crime industry was at the time. And it really gets you right at the beginning. There's no slow build-up. You know, this is talking what, three or four minutes into the film. And it gets you because it's so heartless, it's so violent. This is introducing you to a very, very violent film. And yes, there's style. Yes, there's some light moments and, and some gentle comedy. This is a violent film and you are introduced to that from the off and it's really powerful. Well, I like just like the way this film opens with the title credits and I just want to play a little bit of the music behind a paywall and I won't get uh, I, I won't get shut down from it. So <laughs> it just grabs you by the throat. Yeah, here's here's the opening uh, uh Ennio Morricone track called The Strength of Righteous. Kind of really sets the tone, right, Rich? Of kind of like you're you're almost watching this like 1930s, somewhat pastiche in a way, right? And like the kind of I don't know, it's got it's got those interesting like melodica bits, like that kind of and stuff like that. It's uh, yeah, it, it feels like a, a a Hollywood, like you said earlier, like a kind of a serialized take on that era, almost. Yeah, and I guess this is a strange when you look at time shifting and then there's a lot of nostalgia there for people who grew up, not necessarily during that time, but around the time and would have heard these stories and and seen things on the TV and heard the stories on the radio. And a lot of those influences would have built into, you know, we're now in the mid-80s at this point. So you're seeing all that built in and it is very much... You know, we're we're somewhat coloured by it, but you think this is what people will have thought about when they thought about thirties organised crime stuff, the cops v robbers kind of thing, and and when you've got Morricone, who's everyone knows for a lot of the work he did around, especially around the the good, the bad, and the ugly. But this is so iconic in the same way, but it just fits. You know, this this it tells the story. You know when those credits roll, they they are. This isn't like they're not introducing the cast as kind of the almost like the end of a British sitcom, like the end of Predator. But they're sitting there, the looming letters, the way it's building up. You're seeing all these names that you recognise, and this music's just playing there. And as it goes for the whole film, it just assists with telling the story you don't need the visuals as much because it's a it's an assault on your other senses as well and um i think you know as a, as a kind of when you wonder where other films would have gone if they'd taken other turns but this was a perfect one in, in keeping with the tone of the film and that kind of rose tinted view on how things were yes. and looking back because we know that it would have been very different but this is telling a a passionate story and that kind of not feel good but you know it's like if something good happened to you at the weekend you go into work on monday morning and embellish somewhat 
and yeah. you'd have that score running through the tail as you're telling people at work. There's somewhat of an element of this being like an action-adventure film as well, and I think sometimes mm. the score very much plays into that. Like, especially there's a sequence when they're kind of going for that drug bust on the border, and it's like, oh, this, this music could almost fit in like a an Indiana Jones film somewhat. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like to, to kind of mention another movie, Brad's uh, film. It's like, and it's, I don't know, it, yeah, it somewhat feels like he's kind of going, oh, it's, it's, it's cool what Steven's doing with, with that franchise. Like, I'll take a bit of that flavor and add it into what I'm doing, which could have, I guess, knowing Brian, yeah, no Brian De Palma's films could have gone so many different ways. Like, this could have been a really serious, like, thriller and done in like a, a homage to to noirs almost like really really but it kind of takes the the noir and the, the the time period and kind of goes let's just put some like sparkles and color into it and like bombast right it's like really i don't know i find it yeah i find it massively the, the whole film from the score to the performances to like the visuals it's just quite a, a bombastic film yeah, I think if you know, that there are, there's enough mileage in the Al Capone, the Elliot Ness, the Prohibition angle to go off and do it in all those other ways. And, and, and of course, over the years, people have. Um, but this is memorable because it isn't that. It's because it's, it's larger than life. There are characters in there that you, you, are, you remember because they are big. It's De Niro and Connery run away they they chew the scenery when they're on the film and i think that you need that and i think when you're telling a story about true life and what happened you know it's important that the truth is out there and that people tell those stories but you also need to have that little bit of romance and that little bit of creative license to do what they've done with this because like you say, there's no title card saying this is based on a true story. The people are there, but that's about it. Um, it yes, it happened in Chicago, if we're being honest. But, but yeah, I mean, if everything was a documentary, life would be boring. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, this, this is very much like you can, you can grab some beers and a pizza on a Saturday night and like stick this on with a group of mates and have, have mm. fun with it, right? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to... Robert De Niro and his performance. But before we get to that, I just wanted to talk about Kevin Costner in that central role as Elliot Ness, which uh, I think is really interesting that initially De Palma wanted Don Johnson and after that, Mickey Rourke to play the mm-hmm. role of Elliot Ness. Like, is, I, I can't... It's one of those things, I guess it's in hindsight, but like... I think Costner is perfect for this role of like a kind of goody two shoes cop who's kind of like his. He's 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 obviously tested and does like when we get to the end of the film has definitely done something that uh, equates to murder, I guess. Like or at mm. least like yeah yeah it's murder, right? When he pushes that guy off the building. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the thing as well when you transport yourself back to that time and you look at. Don Johnson in 1987 was Miami Vice. Um, and, and to translate him into this role where Elliot Ness is being portrayed in that way, that he is supposed to be holier than now and, and 
very by the book. And of course, over the course of the film, that does change because it's a film that happens. But I think if you'd put Don Johnson in from the beginning, I'm trying to imagine the audience would have had to suspend their disbelief somewhat that he doesn't roll up the sleeves of his suit before he goes into battle or anything like that. It's, uh, I, I think Costner and has gone on to portray in other roles that that kind of quality that you see here. But I think when you do read about Elliot Ness and that he wasn't this holier than thou person yeah. who was all righteous and all good. Um, but for this version of reality, he was, and I think Costner was great. I, yeah, I, I, I think that like The Untouchables is very much like and Costner's, perform- Costner's performance in this is very much like a, a blueprint to him playing Jim Garrison in JFK as well a few years later, mm. right? <laughs> yeah, de- definitely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, let's talk about uh, Robert De Niro, who, like, for my money, doesn't, like, if you, like, really boil it down, maybe gets, like, 15, 20 minutes of screen time, if that, right? Yeah, I think uh, when you kind of look at the the, the way the film is structured he's there he's this looming presence and i I suppose when you look at the the poster for the film he is in the background overseeing that 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 kind of i'm going to say it again darth vader but he's like that he's looming in the background he's omnipresent he's everything to do with this he's got his tentacles everywhere but when he's on and i think kind of because he's playing al capone as a almost like a batman villain uh-huh. A bit like a that that I think you can't overdo it, and I think you have to to keep it and, and say dilute it. But you you can only have it in small bursts, otherwise it becomes yeah. the Al Capone movie and not the Elliot Ness film. And I think it's one of those things that if he was in it for too much, and if they had too much interaction, it would kind of spoil what you get, and it would disrupt the balance. I think. I I think it's very much like similar because obviously uh, with the Batman out now, everyone's talking about um, Colin Farrell very much looking like a kind of weightier Robert De Niro and his kind of performance is very much like from the De Niro playbook and very much like mm. borrows like from this film, I would say. He's kind of like his version of the Penguin is very much doing like a, an Al Capone, like uh, Kingpin style like ah, I like do you know what I mean? Like really, like I'll get you, I'll get you, 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 your bums. <laughs> like whereas, like yeah, no, nothing, nothing like uh, Danny DeVito's kind of portrayal in, in <laughs> films. I think, like, I find it really interesting as well. Again, to talk about like casting what ifs, and there's an amazing story around this. But Bob Hoskins was basically uh, offered the role, and then. For whatever reason, De Niro managed to, I don't know, got out of a job he was working on, took the role, and De Palma mailed Hoskins a check uh, for his contract fee of $20,000 with a note that said, thank you. And uh, Hoskins contacted him and said, well, if if there's any other time you want me to be in any movies, you'd like if any time, other time you like you want me for a movie you don't want me to be in and still get paid, I'm more than happy to do it. <laughs> I I think that's. I mean, again, Hoskins at the time would have been 
coming off. I think Mona Lisa would have been the year before this. So, yeah, he would have been great in it. But I think, I don't know, maybe for that slight more authenticity. Um, and I think, you know, Hoskins then went on to do Roger Rabbit, I think, came off the year after that. So, I mean, he was capable of such things and, and would have been very good in the role. But I think, yeah, De Niro here, you you do struggle to kind of see this kind of portrayal of Capone. I think De Niro at the time was perfect for it. I mean, he was still, you know, he was doing a very eclectic run of films at the time in the eighties, you know, he did this and then went on to do, I mean, midnight run a year later. So I think it was good. And I, I, I again, not that I'm going to go back and change any of this film, but I, I certainly wouldn't change that. I mean, Hoskins was great. And, um, but yeah, De Niro in this, he, I mean, he was fantastic. And, but there was that menace there that I think, especially with the, the baseball bat scene, that was, you know, peak De Niro. And I think going into, you know, a lot of what he did afterwards before he did the Rocky and Bullwinkle, but <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll leave that there. Well, what, what, yeah, what I found interesting about that as well, as you said about that uh, baseball bat scene, that that was something that was omitted in the Belgian release of, of, of the film when they kind of like first released it. They're like, oh, it's too violent. And because up until that point, you haven't really seen the violence of Al Capone. It's obviously mentioned by the Untouchables, and you get a sense of it in that opening. There's that kind of sense of fret about him, but. Obviously, I don't know, it plays with the audience a bit. Like, it kind of uh, puts you on the back foot somewhat by, like, Al Capone's trying to perceive people that he is this kind of uh, just just a helper to the people, right? He kind of says something to the degree of, like, um, like no, yeah, nobody in my organisation, like, has ever hurt anyone and stuff like that. But then it also says, like, in my neighbourhood growing up, like uh, there was always a saying to do like if you if you if you if you want someone to help you it's always best to, to, to ask for help with a gun and stuff like that so, like, <laughs> yeah he's, he's, yeah he's, I, I think i don't know i think de niro is yeah like you say he's perfectly cast in this film i think hoskins i don't know he's uh, he's great but like uh, it's that thing isn't it in hindsight you can't see it any other way um so let's let's talk about the like yeah the 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 team and the the way that this film kind of assembles them like what do you what do you think of those kind of scenes when well that 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 first scene between Jim and uh, Elliot Ness on the bridge and that kind of I don't know the way, the way that they kind of come together and then obviously the ball really gets rolling once Jim decides to join the team I mean, it is, I suppose, in, in many other kinds of film, it's like a meet-cute, isn't it, where they, they just happen to meet by chance on this bridge. Um, you know, fate has brought them together in the way that they have. And had they not met, it would have gone... The, the, it may not have worked out. It may have gone in a very different direction. But the fact that Connery at this point has very much embraced that older... And, yeah, I mean, he's been, he'd been doing it for a long time, but people were still looking at him as James Bond... Um, he had embraced this kind of elder statesman role um, a, a lot more and that he was able to impart this old style, and we're talking old style in 1930 here, this 
practice this outlook on life and policing and law enforcement onto Elliot Ness, who was this kind of young upstart in fantastic tailoring, quite frankly. But um, <laughs> I mean, this the, the way that it happens, yes, it's random. Yes, it obviously didn't happen in real life, but it works for the film because it brings them together and it shows this principled man who is willing to bend the rules. Yes. And as we find that, that, that scene with the, uh, with the bookkeeper in the, the lodge by Canada, it's, um, <laughs> you know, you can have so many principles, but, uh, yeah, sometimes you, the, the bigger fish lie ahead. But, um, yeah, I mean the, the relationship between the two of them, it was fantastic. And when you mentioned Indiana Jones earlier, I mean, we, we see a couple of years after this when Sean Connery then became the dad to Harrison Ford in, in Indiana Jones. And there was a lot of that in there, the kind of young, handsome American guy being not mental because he literally was the father figure to Indiana Jones. But the way that worked out, this was a very nice little kind of uh, an appetizer for that as well, especially that scene with the horses. Yeah, there's a, there's a great like um, there's a great dynamic between those two actors, and it's like it's it's, it's always great to see uh, Sean Connery having like a lot of fun in a film. I know, obviously, like his final film was the League of uh, Extraordinary Gentlemen, which uh, from all reports say he had no fun making. But this film <laughs> looks like he had fun, and he has fun with the character. Like one of the things I noticed when watching it again. It's just how many like great quips he has. Yeah, you know I mean, like everything he says is kind of like this. These great little, I don't know, turns of phrases. Wherever he says like, "I, I wish I'd have met you ten years t- t- uh, t- ten years ago and uh, and and, and twenty pounds ago," like that. Yeah, I, I totally <laughs> bought it on a Sean Connery accent because it kind of went a bit borat there. I don't, I can't. Can you do a Sean Connery accent at all, Rich? Um, not without getting myself cancelled, despite having significant Scottish heritage. <laughs> I think unless you start adding H's to the end of the words and saying like tenish, but um, but then it's I mean he has, and of course he he won his Oscar for this film, and he he had some of the really great quotes, and and I remember when in the nineties I think I got a PC for the first time and it had that Encarta encyclopedia on a cd-rom and it had these kind of movie clips um and uh, back before you know it was about the closest you can get to video on demand then and it had like the you're going to need a bigger boat from jaws and i'll be back from terminate and it also had um the the line in here about uh you they pull a knife you pull a gun yes and that was on there and that's how big it was because you know this i mean for him he was there and being able to look fantastic dressed in his lovely hats and things like that, which of course the Irish cops then take the piss out of him for later on. But, you know, he's enjoying this kind of later lease of life as, you know, an old style Western sheriff of sorts. Um, But yeah, really chewing up. And I know people give him a stick about the accent. I mean, they, they do it in all his films. I mean, he's supposed to be, I think, Egyptian in Highlander and all that. <laughs> he still speaks the same. Um, you know, and he is a very Scottish Irishman. But, you know, ultimately, it was a great performance. He t- totally deserved the Oscar. And, I, and, I mean, it's a nice touch for yourself that I think it was uh, 
it was Nicolas Cage and Cher who presented him with said yes. statuette. So. Yes, 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 yes. I've shared that clip before online. It's uh, I, I, I absolutely love that clip, not just because of Sean Connery's speech, but um, Cher and Nicolas Cage's just raw sexual energy, like they have, <laughs> and they present as well. They just kind of. They look like they've just walked off the set of Moonstruck straight onto that stage, and it's kind mm. of like, right, they're flirting with each other and they're being playful and stuff like that. Yeah, that's, oh yeah, I, I, I love that. It's probably going to be clipped up and put in right here. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> you mentioning the Oscars, what, what what I find fascinating, especially like we're we're very much approaching uh, the, the the current Oscars. And there's a lot of like debate, like you mentioned, yeah, film Twitter earlier and stuff like that. But kind of people like saying that, yeah, just just film fans saying like popcorn fare doesn't really get uh, appreciated at the Oscars. And I would say that like this is very much like a kind of uh, popcorn blockbuster, right? Like this is very much like this isn't this isn't a, a worthy chin scratcher is it it's, it's very much like a kind of playing to the cheap seats kind of film yeah i mean you've got huge at the time hollywood names and, and up and coming ones as well you've got a director who's made huge films already and you've got ingredients that make it memorable you know we've already talked about morricone and you know the the, the look of it the style of it and it's strange when you think about where we are with films now and that there are either, and, and I'm oversimplifying massively here, but you, you seem to have either franchises or said chin scratchers and you don't have a much of a middle ground. And you kind of see now The Untouchables would probably be a Netflix sort of six or eight part series as opposed to a film yeah. um probably to fill that gap because you, you might not see it otherwise but then you know you look back at those films that won big at the oscars and of course you know i mean this one got best supporting actor but still it's you're in a time when again we're, we're with nostalgia but looking and thinking god i love that film wow you know and yeah some of them were the kind of more thought-provoking slower ones that that aren't your average saturday night fair but i think if if you look at the ingredients of this one um i think yeah I, I, there's there is perhaps a bit of snobbery around it because it's guns and violence and you know th this isn't exactly a a film that promotes equality in many ways and, and some of the some of the language connery used towards andy garcia in their their relationship was, uh, yeah, yes. He speaks littered him, with. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> he speaks to him like Jack Waltz speaks about Italians in uh, the, the in the Godfather. Do you know what I mean? He's like calling them like a dago, mm. like dago guinea waps. Like he might as well be saying all, all of that kind of stuff. Like really, really disparaging. Well, he does, doesn't he? Uh, uh, well, let, yeah. Uh, like, there's mm. a couple of scenes I wanted to dive into. I guess one of one of the like great set pieces in this is that first like bust they do on the on the border and the kind of like you, you get to see the team kind of you've already well you've already seen them kind of like bust into the post office but that's very like 
uh, small scene. This is a lot more kind of, there's a lot more build up to it. We get to see the, the dynamics of the team. What do you think of the team? And obviously, yeah, you've got Oscar there as well and you've got George Stone as um, played by Andy Garcia. What do you think of that scene, and what do you, what do you think of the kind of the, the the team that they've assembled and those performances? I, I think the team is exactly what you would write if you were writing a Hollywood movie team. You've got people of uh, different backgrounds. You've got Oscar, who's I guess the the geek, the nerd, who's looking at the figures, and he's the one who keeps suggesting about. Capone's tax evasion and and things like that, and you've got uh, Os, Os, um, sorry Andy Garcia as the hotshot rogue, hot blooded Italian who had to fake his name to get into the academy, and then then you've got Elliot and and uh, and Malone as well, and it is this kind of you've got to have the not opposites attract because there were four of them, but they all have very different personalities and strengths and weaknesses that, that coming together, they bounce off each other so well. And it is fun to see where a lot of them went on. I mean, of course, Andy Garcia, you know, you've talked about um, in the Godfather part three mm-hmm. um, and, but here he was that kind of really Sort of rash, but he looked like a young cop who goes on to good things. He's he's keen to learn from, especially Malone. They have this, you know, we've already talked about mentoring with Elliot Ness, but there is a kind of respect there, and he takes on a lot of that, um, especially towards the end and and the end scene where um, Elliot gives George the um, was it his his whistle or his watch? I can't remember. And it's kind of key, oh, the handcuff key. That was it. Yeah, there you are. Was the handcuff key, yeah, and you know that that's a significant memento because of the respect that they had, um, and I think as a team it was great because you know they are like the A team; yeah, they yeah. are four very different people, and 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 I think the dynamics between them work so well that I think it 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 carries it off, and I think if you've got a four way team like that, it's only as strong as its weakest part, but they all play well together, and Oscar. Yes, he's the geek. He's the one. He has his moment with a shotgun where he starts. Where he drinks the the whiskey out the barrels, and has his you know his triumph as well. So it's nice to see. And, and again, when you see the the black and white picture at the end, yeah, yeah, as that kind of how great they were and having their dinner. And it was you know it was a nice scene to have. And and they did work well together. And ultimately, in the end. According to this film, that's how Al Capone got caught. <laughs> well, the, yeah, that you saying about that portrayal of um, Oscar by Charles Martin Smith, I think like he's great because he gets to like be the comic relief somewhat. Whether it is that kind of scene where he's drinking the booze, or what, one of the things I kind of noted is how like kind of rampantly horny he seems to be as well. He's always like, <laughs> like a passing comment, and he's like oh yeah, maybe it is better to be out on the field after like he sees a woman and stuff like that. And it's, uh, I think all of them perfectly in the kind of conventions of a film like fit those archetypes well, but they're, they're interesting and you kind of, you know, the film doesn't really mess about in kind of, you don't need the backstory with them. You kind of, you, 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 you get it mm. in there, the, the performances, you get it like very quick in the, like that David Mamet script of just like, 
when Elliot Ness is introduced to Oscar, like you get that idea of, ah, I've got this guy's card marked. I know exactly who he is. You get the same with Jim Malone, and you kind of like you get the same with yeah George Stone as well, where it's like kind of ah, uh, there's an element of like a bit of a hothead in there, but like when kind of pushed on it, he will very much have the team's back and like despite the kind of like yeah because i think it's when is it malone kind of like confronts him and he pulls like a knife on him and kind of speaks back to him it's like that's the respect mm. like he gains that respect by kind of like confronting him and being like hey, you want to fuck with me i'll fuck with you more like kind of thing <laughs> he, yeah he pulled the kosh on him when they first met at the academy and uh, George has the little uh, the revolver up and up against his throat within seconds, um, you know. And again, they've picked this guy out not for any quality of an investigator or an enforcer. And he he is a great shot. And of course, further down the line, that becomes incredibly important. But you know, that's why he's on the team, and yet he brings a very important role. And um, and you do wonder what what he goes on to in, in the Untouchables too. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was a great team, I think, and, and you know the fact that the film is about about them, they are the Untouchables, and um, you know I think they they got that perfectly right. And I think if you'd had, you know, um, Oscar being played by someone who would have been a much higher profile person at the time, again, you're losing that balance then between Elliot and Malone, yes. and I think that's what you need. You still, even within a team of four, you still usually have two who kind of carry it a little bit more and and have that emotional weight and i think that's what we have so yeah i think it's um yeah as, as a foursome they work really well and i think having those bigger names as well you you always think like oh they're not going to kill off that like they're not going to kill off all of these guys Do you know what i mean like there's obviously <laughs> big checks going on like obviously sean connery wanted wanted that oscar so he's like give me a death scene i want a death scene like that, that, that's gonna that's gonna bag mm. me that oscar and nomination and win but um <laughs> yeah we get that scene where like oscar's killed in the elevator which again like oh gives us like some real uh, there's a i don't know it's there's a real departmentalisms in the fact of like the way that the camera is like focused on the elevator and then kind of swings round down the corridor and it's like a really impressive like one shot because it's like really hustling and bustling and then we see like um elliot ness and jim malone turn around the corner and the, 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 the camera follows them and like kind of it's almost like well yeah in real time we're with them as they realize like oh shit something's about to go down like what do you make of that 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 sequence and like kind of I don't know, having, I imagine you've seen it a lot of times, like, does it still pack a punch of, like, I don't know, tension ramping? It does, because I think at that point, the Untouchables are kind of on the front foot. Um, they've got the bookkeeper, or the, um, the, the, the original bookkeeper going to court. And this is where they kind of have to be reminded that that, the threat is still there and, and Billy Drago is just a A-list bastard, isn't he? He's just this menacing, evil guy. In all these films he put, he plays in, he just looks like a villain, like something out of a, a Roman empire. He's that kind of lurking assassin. And 
that scene where Malone and Ness are virtually patting themselves on the back of a job well done that they're on the road. And you know, this is where it happens because there's still the corruption in the police. There's still where, where this is allowed to happen. And it does need, I guess at some point, they need to have some tragedy and some loss to kind of bring it back down to earth a little bit. And it's, it is painful because, yes, he's not, you know, we, we see Malone's death scene further down the line, but this is more of a tense thing because we kind of get the suspicion that something bad's going to happen because we're, what, two-thirds of the way through the film. Um, it's, it's not going to wrap up that nicely. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's difficult because, you know, he's had his moment with the shotgun and the whiskey and you know, he feels like an integral part of the team. And then this happens and you know, he's just done by absolute bastard. Well, yeah, and it's obviously his idea that was the kind of like, you know what I mean, he set up the kind of Chekhov's tax evasion that eventually got Al Capone as well. It's like, obviously knowing what happened in real life, like the moment he he mentions like, hey, I've noticed he he hasn't paid any tax. Like It's like, you're like mm. going, okay. Do you know what I mean? It's like a kind of um, chubby hum, like kind of moment, like in the film where it's like, Okay, yeah, I get what you're doing, and I kind of I like this. It kind of plays to that, that I don't know, popcorn movie kind of like, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're we're having fun here aspect to the film. Um, so, uh, let yeah, I'm trying to think of other scenes that um, let's talk about. I guess, well, one of them would be yeah. Let's let let's jump to Jim Malone's apartment and his kind of death, like. Which is a scene that I think is masterfully shot. Like, and obviously, Brian De Palma is like, it's, it, it, yeah, many people have said he just rips off um, Hitchcock like tenfold. And I think like th- this scene is probably the biggest homage to to uh, Hitchcock in a way. And that like, there's a lot of like POV of the guys like stalking him down the hall and stuff like that. And like. Yeah, you get that real sense of again. It's like I think uh, Brian De Palma is a master of creating tension and kind of like giving us really good payoffs to it. What do you make of yeah? What do you make of that kind of the way that Jim Malone's death is kind of that scene is put together? Um, I mean, you can tell from the beginning, and, and as you mentioned, that kind of POV shot where it's the camera hiding mm-hmm. from the window. Um, I mean, things like that, Al, it does put you in that position somewhat where you, it's hard to say if you know what's going to happen. I guess it's more the the journey rather than the destination. But the fact is how it's done. I think you, you get that moment where you think that Malone has got it. He's he's worked it out. He's sussed the fella out. And, of course, then the nitty is then in the background and the fact that I think towards the end, it's interspersed with, um, with Capone at the opera yes, where he's giving off his vibes of being a respectable cultured guy. And all the while he's ordered this policeman to be killed. Um, I mean, it is very well done by Connery. And I think there is a little bit of ham at the end where he, I think he's dying kind of (laughs) other than grabbing the, the, the handcuff key. But also the pointing at the train timetable yeah. for when they're they're planning on doing their their move 
thinking that that's his fight. <laughs> it's like um, who shot Mr. Burns at the end where they're pointing at the uh, the compass. Yeah, yeah, the sundial, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's a, that's a reference to this, right? Like, because I know the Simpsons are kind of famous for pulling stuff from stuff they enjoy, and I imagine, I don't know, they did a whole episode that's based on Cape Fear. I imagine they would have nicked a bit of the Untouchables mm. for Who Shot Mr. Burns. Um, well, they did. Well, they did an episode of yeah, it was the the, uh, the Beer Baron, and um, I can't remember the name of the the character who was essentially Elliot Ness, and Homer <laughs> was the Beer Baron. When they introduced Prohibition into Springfield and there was that thing was, I'm going to get you beer, Baron. And he said, no, you won't. <laughs> what, um, what is amazing, like, a shot I love in this film, is you mentioned that, that like, about the opera. Is that shot we get of the opera singer singing and you can kind of like, you can see Al Capone in the background and then it kind of like, fades mm. in, or like just kind of, yeah, like transitions into a zoom shot into him, kind of like, Almost like maniacally laughing, isn't it? It's like kind of, I'm have. It's almost like I don't know. Like he can see, and I guess using the opera as well. It's like the tragedy that we're seeing of Malone's death, right? Yeah. So, like I guess, like thematically, it, it works perfectly um, for that moment. Yeah, like you said, there's a lot of ham in uh, Sean Connery's performance when he's when he's really giving it and he's deaf. But I don't know, like. I think that scene into what is, I guess, the most iconic sequence of this film, right? With the with the steps at the train station into the like Jack yeah. chase is a real like flex of the muscle on Brian De Palma's part because all three of those, I don't know, like, well, the the, the steps could have easily have been a like a denouement to this film do you know what I mean could have been a perfect ending whereas like he's like mm. you like that I'm gonna give you a little bit more so um yeah what do you what do you make of the what, you, what happens in the train station sequence and what, what what are your kind of views on it I mean I think when you look at it now and you see how integral it is to the film, but they've also added so many parts of it to add jeopardy and peril. And it's the end of that part where suddenly having the best shot on the Academy on your team. Oh, okay. That's just as well. He's on there. And I think it's just so well done and it is overplayed again. You know, this is not a film for subtlety in any way at all, but, when you've gone from Sean Connery's death to a slow motion baby in a bugaboo going down steps at the station and you've, Oh, it's just, you can watch it a thousand times and you still feel like whether you're, it's because now you're a parent and you've got, you suddenly now place yourself with the mum and not the cops or the robbers or anything like that. Um, and all this, this gunfires going on and people getting shot in the head yeah, um, just random sailors oh, like, just... getting gunned down. <laughs> they're on leave. They're there for a good weekend. Um, and and the way that it's done, it's not subtle. It's not slow. It's just laid out in front of you going, I'm going to make the most of this. And like you say, you know, when, when you stitch these scenes together, there isn't a lot of let up. Um, 
you don't get a lot of chance to breathe, really, because you're going, you know, a lot of films, like you say, this would have been the finale. And yet this is just one part of the bigger puzzle in this because this is a massive movie. And it's just so great. And I remember they, I think, did it get ripped off in one of the, one of the Naked Gun movies, I think, yes. the train sequence. Yeah, I um, well, but it's, <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. a homage itself to uh, Battleship Potemkin and the Odetta, like famous Odetta step scene as well. So like it, it kind of, he is borrowing from something himself anyway, but like, yeah. I think it's, I think it's done so, so well. I hear. Yeah. I mean, it's just so good to watch. And I think that's, it's easy to take things either too seriously or, or go too far into parody. But um, I think it's got such a distinct style to it, um, the way it's shot. And I think when it ends with George having that kind of dead-eyed, clean shot of the head of the guy who's taken the, the dweeb hostage, it's kind of, it's there. And it ends on that as if it's like, that feels like a Bond film. That feels like something that classic cinema, you know, and, and like a Western or something like that. And again, that is just the tease up the next sequence where, where you go to the court. I mean, it's just nonstop. One of the things I noticed on this watch with that sequence is just kind of like how cleverly with like the kind of the shot choices and the kind of in the tension building. Because obviously like, they don't know who they're looking for. They're kind of looking about. It kind of like really subtly like gives the audience uh, a geography of the place. So like you're never confused as to what's going on. And I think like without ramping, without kind of like being quite slow at the beginning with a lot of this like looking about and like the kind of him helping the woman up the steps kind of like you need all of that like it could have just been a great sequence i don't know whatever with if, if if the baby had started at the top of the stairs and was let go but the fact that like you have all that preamble to the shootout and yeah again it kind of it's not spoon feeding because it's done so like delicately that like when it happens it's really satisfying because it's like oh yeah i know I know exactly where everyone is kind of placed in this. Do you know what I mean? Like, if kind of like, if really tested, you could probably like, given a, a I don't know, given like a an architect's view of that thing, you could go, <laughs> oh well, Elliot Ness is here, George is here, that heavy's there, that heavy's there. Do you know what I mean? Like, you can, you you, you know what's going on, and I think like that is, that is real filmmaking, kind of like at its fore. I think very much like. Especially a film, like we said, like we keep saying, it's a, it's quite a popcorn film. But like, to, no, it, it doesn't it doesn't treat the audience like idiots. I don't think. No, because I think the, the simple premise of moving the p- pieces into position. So, like, like you said, him helping the mother with the pram up the stairs. That both demonstrates that he's a good guy. Yes, um, but also. <sighs> Yes, we need that parody, uh, peril and jeopardy, but he still has to think about this and, and still make that snap decision when it emerges that he needs to draw his gun. Um, but the fact that this buggy is going down the steps, it gives it that extra little thing that you're also invested in 
a child because what sort of monster wouldn't be unless you substitute the child for a I know a puppy in my case, <laughs> but um, but otherwise it's it is when you break it down to its core, it's very simple, but it still has to be done well. It's still executed really well, um, and you know ultimately, yes, we're we're kind of spoiled a little bit by the the end, what well, the the headshot at the end, and and the fact that they get this guy to court the next day. But I think. Uh, you know, and ultimately, it means that Malone's death wasn't in vain. He still gave the information that got this guy, and um, you know, it all all feeds into each other. Yeah, and what and what a, what a satisfying kind of like dampener and then relief. Like, and that's the thing. Like, whereas other films would have gone, you know, what we'll we'll string this out a bit. This film goes, we'll show you his death, and we will literally show you retribution, like minutes later. Do you know what I mean? It's like we're kind of rolling from that sequence to this sequence. And then, mm-hmm. I don't know, like, I, I hadn't, like, before re-watching this recently, I hadn't re-watched it in years. And I kind of always imagined that that thing at the, on the steps being, like, the final, like, sequence of this film. Mm. I, don't, I don't know. I thought they just, like, walked off into the sunset after that. It very much has that feel. But, like, yeah, like... moving forward to the court the court case like yeah what again what what happens here and what are your kind of thoughts on on the sequence we get next rich i mean when you get the fact that capone is in court which is a victory in itself to to some regard but ultimately he's looking so casual and i think that's almost what gives him away and that's what they realised, that why is he so casual when all this evidence is presented against him? And it turned out that they've bribed, I think it was every member of the jury. And of course, being 1930 Chicago, they're all old white men. And they have this scene where um, Nitty, uh, Billy Drago, has this list on him of all the jurors and all the amounts that they've been bribed with. Um, and when he gets seen having a gun on him in a courtroom, which is the worst thing in the world, he gets taken out, and because he has the matchbook with Malone's address on it, that's what twigs Elliot Ness into this fantastic chase. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it it goes on a bit longer than I remembered when I watched (laughs) it recently. Um, For some reason, I thought when... Drago starts abseiling or rappelling down the side of the building. For some reason, I had in my head that's when Ness killed him. Uh-huh. But of course, then he he gets him back up and is then leading him down. And as he starts making these comments about killing his mate and that, and that's when he throws him off. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's when you really see that <laughs> Ness is now like, I this is what I need to do. Um, you know, but by letting this person live. Other people are going to die. It's, yeah, um, he's learned. Yeah, from, that that, that wor- worm has turned. And he's learned from Jim Malone's kind of um, like message, right? That if you want to take this guy down, you've got to be prepared to shoot first. You've got to play by their mm. rules. Like, unfortunately, this isn't about being by the book. To act, unfortunately, to get this job done, you've got to get your hands dirty and kind of like, the the mob doesn't play by 
<laughs> by, by the rules. So the only way you're going to get them is be prepared to shoot first. And kind of, so there's that there's that beautiful moment that like the camera really like lingers on Kevin Costa as he's kind of like got that decision in his head of like, do I shoot him now whilst he's dangling on a string, basically? Mm. It just like hovers, hovers, hovers for ages, and we see him like. Put the, put the um, put the uh, not trigger the, the the kind of uh, like capture the gun up like kind of like I'm not gonna do it, and then yeah. when when he does throw him off, it is like a real like well fuck that's pretty that's pretty brutal, but at the same time it's like yeah that is what you got to do to kind of get one up on these guys. Yeah, I guess and uh, hopefully my bosses aren't listening to this, but um, sometimes when. You know, like you said, you've got to play, you've got to try and play by the rules, but ultimately the mob aren't. And this is where it's all well and good getting Capone in front of a jury. But if the jury all bent, and to be honest, the judge also has, they have dirt on him as well because he's so reluctant to to do anything about it. And I think the fact that Ness does pull him up from that rope... There's that great, and it, that great move oh, yeah. that Ness does in the court as well, where he lies about the judge's name being on that list, which obviously is like an admission yeah. of guilt when he does what he does, because he's like, "My hands are dirty." Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's like, I think someone says like, "His name wasn't on that list," and he's like, "I know," but it's like you've sometimes again you've got to play by those kind of dirty tactics to kind of like finagle things into into in, in, into actually getting. Real justice, not kind of this. I don't know. Sometimes justice through the courts can be very like unjust in some way, right? Mm. Yeah, and I think you know the the scene that we we touched on earlier, where when they're in the the cabin or the lodge by the by the Canadian border, and and Malone intimates that he's going to shoot the guy in order to get your man to talk. Um, Obviously, we know it's a dead guy already, but the you know the the Mountie's face is fantastic when he sees that. But you know, um, Ness isn't appalled by that. I think he sees the ingenuity of it, albeit you know sometimes the, the tactics are questionable. But you know, he sees it gets results, and I think you know they're, they're untouchable to an extent. But ultimately. You know, we're not going to turn around and say, yeah, Capone got put in prison for tax evasion because Elliot Ness threw a, a goon off a building. But, um, you know, ultimately justice was done and, uh, yeah, Kevin Costner saved the day, which I think he's contractually obliged to do. <laughs> what, what, one of the, like, real, real tiny details I love in that kind of uh, nitty kind of sequence is just right at the beginning of it when camera just ever so slightly focused like shifts focus from Elliot Ness's hand to the matchbook which obviously like on kind of like deep rewatch and like re- really paying attention to like the shots in this film it's like just beautiful see like you know I mean if you're paying attention you pick up on a moment like that and then like I don't know it's, it's like it's like a magic trick and I think like again it very much plays into what I said earlier of like Brian De Palma using like the the tricks of movie making and like filmmaking and not treating the audience like idiots and it's like 
I'm going to put these like really subtle breadcrumbs. And obviously like the payoff for that is quite quick, but like it's a really interesting like way to use the camera to just like kind of, if you're paying attention, you can kind of be like, oh, there's significance to this matchbook. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of like slow gazes and shifty eyes and that oh. kind of, again, the stuff that's been done for, for generations and parodied beyond, but it works well within the context of the film. We all know he's a wrong one. And at this point, he's kind of realised that, you know, ah, the you know, the cog has turned and the pieces have all fallen into place and he's suddenly realised. Um, and I mean, this, again, it's, that could be another finale to the film uh-huh. um, before we get another one with the, the, the judgment. And I mean, it's just such a way, <laughs> again, Finale to finale to finale, um, but yeah, it's um, it's satisfying because Nitty is there from the beginning. He's the one who takes the bomb into the the bar or the the cafe that the little girl yeah. is blown up by. He, he's the one outside of his house as well, right? Who kind of mm. like, makes that passing comment of like, "Hey, you live here?" Like the little girl's birthday mm. is it, and stuff like that. That kind of puts the ball in motion for Elliot Ness getting his family out of Dodge and stuff like that. And it's yeah. It, and I think it, it, it says something to that thing of like, yeah, there may be like a big bad in like an Al Capone, but there's this like, it's the people that go along with that kind of, I don't know, that that organisation and stuff like that. And there's like, it's got to be a real fucking psychopath to, 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 to get involved, do you know what I mean? And to, to, to be one of those, to be one of those guys and that they're, they're, they're the ones actually carrying out the heinous acts, whereas kind of Al Capone gets... Well, most thing. good... Yeah, well, most good villain, movie villains, have a good henchman, don't they? And uh, as as henchmen go, he's definitely menacing. Yes. He doesn't have some of the, the tropes of a, a Bond or, or something else, but he is menacing. He's got that psychotic edge, and he looks like it as well. Um, I mean, it's great casting to have him in there. And I think Billy Drago was typecast as evil <laughs> goon. But, um, but even so, I mean, he was fantastic. And, and like you said, that scene where he did pull up outside Ness's house, there was that hint of menace that you'd have got from from something like that. You mentioned earlier, like, obviously Bob Hoskins being in uh, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Like, yeah, Billy Drago looks like one of the weasels on that film he like very much has that <laughs> to him yeah um, <laughs> he does so yeah like like basically at the end of the film obviously yeah the the the, the judgment comes in well, it's not even a judgment right it's kind of it's brought to their their attention that they're going to swap out the jury like for another one and then Al Capone's lawyer realizes they're definitely on the back foot and decides to change their plea from not guilty to guilty. And then what I find great about this film is obviously we got that tender scene between um, Elliot Ness and George, but like this film ends on basically like a one-liner. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's 
It's a strange one because, again, I mean, I could understand Al Capone being frustrated if your defence lawyer suddenly changes your plea without any consultation. Um, it's, you know, you're pay- I assume he's paying big bucks for this and to go down essentially without a fight seems uh, seems like cowardice. But, yeah, I mean, it, his outrage and outburst saying he's nothing but a gun and a badge yeah. to, to Elliot Ness... And you know it's it's great a comeuppance. You know he's he's carted off to jail, and, and Elliot Ness rides off into the sunset. But it's um, it is a strange kind of, and it has to be done. I think after all the excitement of the the train station and the rooftop and everything, and, and Malone's death, that you know ultimately your villain is convicted for tax evasion after how many murders and frauds and stuff but um i mean to to tie that up it's just so so well done and yes it is a bit twee at the end but i think the you know looking at the the photo and and handing over the handcuff keys to george it is poignant and i think you need that at the end and you know it does leave you with a little bit of i wonder what happened after this which all good films should do i think yeah, and it, it it ends on that line as well, and almost like a kind of beautiful irony to the film, where obviously he's like, there's that uh, journalist who's kind of throughout the film who kind of always happens to be there at the right opportune moment to get the shot or whatever. He mm. kind of says to him like, "What are you going to do now, like uh, Jim? Like now, uh, Jim? Uh, what are you going to do now, Elliot? Now that the like prohibition's coming to an end, what do you think about that?" And like yeah, the final line we get in the film is. You know what? I think I'll have a drink, which is like <laughs> I don't know. Like Brian De Palma is somebody who's not really known for comedy, and his kind of comedies don't really work. But I think this film—I don't know how you feel—like there's some great comedy within it. Yeah, I think a lot of it is the comedy from the camaraderie, um, rather than necessarily the the one-liners. And I think that's kind of says a lot where. <laughs> It is the interaction between the the team, the Untouchables, but also between the the protagonist. But I think, I mean, as again, as a final line, it's I think I'll have a drink. You know, there's a lot of words there that aren't you know repealing prohibition. You need to have paid attention <laughs> if they're going to repeal prohibition. What are you going to do? I mean, you know, you could think that's some kind of crazy dance craze or something like that. But uh, yeah. even so, <laughs> even so, I mean, I, I, when when you do look into Elliot Ness and you find out that he had more than one drink, he uh, had quite a heavy drinking problem. So, um, yeah, the, the beer baron was caught in the end. But uh, <laughs> well, I, I just think it's fascinating as well that, like, setting something in Prohibition era is, like, really sets out that thing of, like, somebody who is really by the book as well like kind of like as a moral mm. tale because it, it is that thing that obviously especially looking at it in the 1980s like a, a a decade that is known for its kind of decadence and opulence and then like looking at it from now where kind of especially in the uk where like binge culture of drinking is kind of like the, the norm and stuff like that it's like and like even the film addresses it by being like i know that a lot of you do drink and stuff like that because it's it's almost like a i don't know it's a really archaic law do you know what i mean in that thing of like 
it's not it's, it's it's a weird one right well it is but we also see that malone has a bottle of whiskey in his kitchen when um at the death scene and so again you know not not exactly whiter than white but this kind of shows how and and again you could change that to a potential future where you know the you start outlawing drugs or, or any other kind of recreation where someone will always seek to profit. Um, and how you deal with that is, is an entirely different matter. But I think, um, you know, the fact that Elliot Ness will take a drink if the law allows him to, it's, um, you know, without being too topical or political, you know, it's, it's, it's nice that the lawmakers and law enforcers do stick to the rules and not, think that they're far above it and everything like that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and i think it, it very much because this film is all about painting him to be like white picket fence as you said whiter mm. than white kind of like real like shiny badge law enforcer in the fact right like you said they fudged a lot of the truths about elliot ness don't they? i think at the time he took down uh, al capone he was kind of like on his third marriage like he never kind of had the, the nuclear family of two kids and a wife he kind of he only ever had like an adopted son and stuff like that it's not like he he's a, i don't know he seems like a lot more complex character than this film portrays him yeah but um i think for the purpose of the film it, it, it was right it shows him you know how do they get to if if this organization has tentacles, how do they get to him? Will they threaten his wife and kid? Um, and, you know, if at the time, things were a lot more grey than that. But, uh, I mean, he was very good. You know, he was always well turned out and shiny shoes and combed hair, Armani suits, but then I think they all did. But even <laughs> so, it was... Uh, I, I, I think, you know, they, they make no bones about it. And ultimately... You know, he, he did learn from Malone, whether it was good or bad. But, you know, ultimate, at the end of the day, they got their man. So, um, you know, the uh, maybe we should all be more like Elliot Ness, the <laughs> Kevin Costner version, of course, rather than the real one. Well, I don't know. The, the, the real one sounds like he's, uh, <laughs> he's a bit of a laugh. Do you know what I mean? He's more, uh, more <laughs> um, he, had a lot, he had a lot more fun. He'd be good on a night out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so before we start to wrap things up, like, is there anything else in the film that we've missed that you, you, you feel like we should talk about at all, Rich? Um, I, I think the, the, the scene on the border, and I, I have gone back to it a couple of times, but there's so many elements of that that are like a Western. Yes. That again, you know, maybe that's where the Morricone link, and I, I, maybe I'm looking for things that aren't there, but you know, the horses on the frontier and all these mounties coming in and everything. And, um, you know, there's, there's elements of that, which look like a nice homage to a, you know, again, in 1930, people were still having some nostalgia for there. And, you know, I particularly enjoyed the scene where, um, Malone was fighting with the other Irish cop. And he's sort of thinking, you know, from, from my, you know, my, my family background, you know, seeing two Irishmen fighting in the rain, it's just like a normal Saturday night. But it's, um, you know, it was, I mean, it's just, there were a lot of portrayals of corruption in there. And I mean, I've, I've recently watched The Wire. So again, that's quite fresh in my mind. But there's a lot of stuff going on there that, you know, there's a lot of layered stuff where if this was drawn out into a 
a TV series in this kind of universe where they carried on with the the larger than life characters and and the slightly hazy truth. It would be fun to see where they go with it. Um, you know, the the script and the story are the way they are, and I think there's a lot there that without taking away from the film, there are a lot of things that you'd like to know more about. And I'm not saying go back and, and do that, but yes, yeah, it's, it's always nice when you come away from a film thinking, yeah, I wonder what happened there. Or, you know, th- there's more to that, that you, in another world, in a four hour alternate cut, there'd be some kind of extra footage or deleted scenes that would really sort of not fill the gaps, but wet the appetite. Well, it feels like this is a perfect time to mention that there is actually a 1959 Untouchables TV series, which mm. when you kind of uh, look at the... doesn't really get too much mention like on anything about this film because I guess they both they both pull from the same source material, whether it is the kind of um, Elliot Ness novel or, yeah, like there's a couple of books. There's a... Yeah, it's yeah, and the Oscar Fraley and Elliot Ness kind of uh, b- book about it. But yeah, there's four seasons of a nineteen forty, a nineteen fifty nine series all about like the kind of ongoing exploits of the Untouchables. So I don't know, maybe may, maybe that's where you get your feel of the the, the more adventures with these guys. <laughs> yeah, I might have to go and track that down. I can imagine that's the sort of thing doing the rounds on Amazon Prime. It's not uh, not C list enough for them, but who knows? Yeah, who knows with Amazon Prime? Their interface is so 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 bewildering <laughs> that it's probably buried in there somewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's probably next to the live tennis. Yeah, search for them. They're, they're never the ones that you have that, that they get fed to you on your on your homepage. Yeah, so if you if you've run out of live tennis to watch, it's almost there. Right, uh, Rich. Yeah, as 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 we wrap this up, I just wanted to obviously put this in context with the movie brats. Like, can you think of any other movie brats who who did a film that kind of played in this same sandbox of like period at all? I, I mean, I think this kind of works. And again, I mean, you with the De Niro link, it would have been fun to have seen this in a Scorsese or a. Uh, or a Coppola angle, I think. A um, version of it, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it would have been... I mean, you would have had differences in the techniques and the shots and everything, but you kind of imagine that perhaps the the portrayals and the styles would have been fairly similar. I think it would have been finessed differently and presented differently, but I think ultimately, if if you've got a skilled movie maker who's got experience of dealing with certain cast members and and very clear about what they want to put on the screen i think yeah they would have worked i mean it more so in in their case but i think um i mean i was saying i don't want to decry what de palma did at all with it i think he did a fantastic job and you know i wouldn't wouldn't change anything about it quite frankly but i think there definitely a couple of tweaks with maybe some of the more signature moves of of a yeah, one of those other guys would have yeah. made it made it more interesting, but I don't think it would have made it any better. I think the closest director to this, if you kind of strip away the the De Palmerisms of it, I could see a Steven Spielberg version of this film. Weirdly, yeah, I mean he's gone back, especially when you look at his kind of say later, but you know once you've gone away from the sorry 
once you've gone away from the the Indiana Jones and the, the Jaws and all that, he has gone into the past. Um, he spent a lot of time looking at you know films in different genres and, and with different styles. And I mean, you look at West Side Story, for example, and I think he would have put a flourish on there that would have been different. Yes. But I think if handled by someone as skilled as Spielberg, it almost certainly would have worked. Yeah, I, I think the Spielberg version of this would have been a bit more serious as well, Like, which I think mm. is weird, especially when you think about, yeah, this film is written by David Mamet, who's known for being like quite like a, I don't know, like a, a serious like playwright and scriptwriter, and then obviously Brian De Palma, who I guess if anything can, like, is kind of more schlocky, if anything, like, in his film. It's like the him really like at least his first dip of the toe into like uh, a blockbuster somewhat. I know that um, Scarface did well, but that is still very much like a, a very gritty film. Whereas this is very much like I don't know, like it's a summer film, right? It's a kind of it, it could easily be like a kind of I don't know, and it's it's kind of got this reputation almost in the, in the UK. I know, especially for me, it's like this. It's a classic ITV2 film. <laughs> That's the thing. I think before I watched it, I mean, I, I own it on, on iTunes, but I think it was recently one of those that was often on ITV2 that you turn on to kind of when you finish watching whatever you are of the evening. And you turn in and you're halfway through here. It's probably around the scene of the, the Canadian board and you think, oh, okay, I'll give it another half hour then. Before you know it, you've watched the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's easily done. It's an ultimately rewatchable film as well. So, um, yeah, let, let's kind of close this up. And the, the way I like to do that is obviously I, uh, my, my bread and butter is talking about the Coppola family and, of course, Francis Ford Coppola. And I like to I like to look at where Coppola was at this time in his career and how, how this film compares to what he was doing at that time. So... 1987, the film in question is Gardens of Stone. Have you ever seen Gardens of Stone? Um, Rick? Uh, no, I haven't. I am um, again. This, you know, my my deep dive clearly hasn't um, hasn't gone where it should have done. But I think, yeah, I think if we're talking a film that I haven't seen, and I'm not saying again, I'm no buff, but you know, I, I know very little about it to be honest. But I would struggle to picture it as in maybe not the same league that would be harsh but i have such fondness for the untouchables that i will i I may have to sit down and watch gardens of stone just to see how it actually compares because i do love the untouchables well yeah so gardens of stone is one that until i started like looking at francis ford coppola's films had no idea even existed it's one of those kind of like oddball it's a very like personal film kind of almost like his answer to apocalypse now it's kind of about an aging um like a guy in the army and like kind of dealing with grief and stuff like that so very much like i don't know yeah in that way that some some of these directors would revisit those kind of genres or or subject matters that they had played in before and kind of maybe give it like i don't know more of like a a serious look and a a a more heartfelt look as opposed to their their big bombastic things but um 
to the numbers. So we'll start with Gardens of Stone. Uh, those of you keenly listening would have remembered the Untouchables uh, budget and box office. So let's see how they compare. So Gardens of Stone is $13 million to make box office of $5,200,062,000. Oh, no. Uh, $62,050. The Untouchables, $25 million budget with a box office return of uh, $106.2 million. So I guess on a financial basis, The Untouchables is a better film. And um, (laughs) yeah, without you seeing the film, I guess you can't comment on which one is better. But I guess The Untouchables in the sheer fact that I hadn't heard about it until doing a deep dive on the Coppola's and you having never seen it, that it, it doesn't have the lasting impression that The Untouchables does, right? No, but I, I'm i tempted to give it a go, just on that basis. Um, it'd be interesting to see, I mean, again, different filmmakers with different backgrounds, and, and if there is a personal element to it with the, the Vietnam side. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, I I would struggle. I mean, there aren't many films that I've kind of gone back to for the first time as an adult and been wowed by. And I mean, we're talking things like Blade Runner here, perhaps. But um, yeah, I mean, it would have to go some. And I mean, I'd, I'd go in there with an open mind. Let's put it that way. Perfect. Um, so let's score this film, Rich. And yeah, how many? How many um, uh, pendants of St Jude out of five? you give the untouchable oh i'm i'm gonna give this five takes of takes of a drink for this five uh, it's swigs. uh five swigs of a, a whiskey that i keep in a record player in my uh bachelor pad just like sean connery lovely lovely um yeah i think this is definitely like a solid four start but yeah this is a four uh st jude pendants out of five for me it's uh i don't know it it just because I'm I, I'm in the kind of very much encompassed in the De Palma world, it's not one of my favourites of De Palma's. Like I, um, at the moment, there might be some recent recency bias on it, but like Holly O's Way, I think is an absolute masterpiece. So mm. I kind of feel like I'm judging stuff against the last De Palma film I've seen. But this is yeah, like I've said throughout the conversation, is there's some amazing there's like fantastic set pieces there's more there's more than one whereas like films get by on just one set piece this film kind of like is like have that set piece have that set piece have that set piece and let's throw in another one just for good measure and yeah it's it's fun like that's what you want from a film like you want you want a lot of a lot of fun and this film has absolute spades of fun yeah, I mean, every ingredient worked together, uh-huh. um, and the way it was put, you know, the, the way it was constructed, the way it was presented, and you know, ultimately, the director is responsible for that. And and it just watching it again, you know, several times before and and now, there's nothing that I change. There's nothing that I get bored with, um, and that, like you said as well, that there's very little fat on the film. Um, you know, and, and for a two-hour film, it doesn't feel long at all. Yeah. And I know by by modern standards, two hours is probably quite short. But but even so, you can watch enough of this 
and get something from it, whether it's whether it's a performance, whether it's an angle you haven't seen or a joke or a line. It's all just so good. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And you can yeah, you can watch it on these kind of multi-layered levels. You can watch it kind of as a bit of fun. You can watch it through that lens of know, like what De Palma is doing as 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 a filmmaker and how he's bringing his stamp to the film. And I, I guess what this film does really well, in a way, is it has enough of the kind of De Palma flair without kind of bogging the film down with kind of flashiness and kind of mm. his his tropes it kind of very conveniently just kind of uses them to to his advantage and kind of uses them to build tension and kind of make things interesting as opposed to like them being the thing you're watching it's like the story's really fun the characters are really fun and like yeah the De Palma-isms are very much like a, a seasoning to all of that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a solid film. Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I enjoyed it hugely. And th- thank you for letting me... Okay, sorry. Thank you for giving me an excuse to watch it again. Not that I ever need one, but uh, to actually sit down and not happen across it halfway through, but to uh, sit down with a pen. It's oh, cracking. Always love it. No worries, Rich. Well, before I let you go, like, where can people keep up to date with you? What's what? What is happening with Betamax Video Club? Is it is it dead like the Betamax itself, or is it is it kind of hibernating, waiting for its long return? And obviously, tell us about. Uh, uh, do you want me? What are these podcasts um, like? Where can people listen to them? Yeah, so um, Betamax Video Club. I I I'll be honest. I think it's gone the way of Malone now. It's um. <laughs> I don't think it's coming back. It served its purpose. It's had its glorious, glorious finale. And um, yeah, so that was uh, oh God, 90, 95 episodes in the end of uh, all about 80s movies. Uh, obviously, we, we talked about Lethal Weapon on one of the early ones, one of the legendary Christmas Christmas movies we did. Um, yeah, it was um, a lot of fun doing that. Um, that's still available. I haven't done a new one now for a year. I think it ended on... Um, on Flash Gordon, but um, yeah, there's a lot there. There's yeah, there's plenty of Sean Connery. Don't you worry. But um, yeah, so that's gone. And um, don't you want me? Which I do now with uh, with Cat Catherine Lowe, who was a regular on Beatmax. We did the Moonstruck episode, which was a lot of fun because that was a great film. But um, we do a podcast now, which looks specifically at the relationships between. Uh, characters within a film and they're not always romantic ones so I mean I guess in in this Untouchables you're probably looking at a textbook ideal one for us would be that between Elliot Ness and and Malone Uh we did one about Point Break where it was between Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze Um, there's a couple where we're looking at kind of professional relationships or you know obviously romantic but then you know family ones too so um we got uh, we did a series of that last year and a few bonus episodes, and uh, series two of that will be coming very soon. With that, yeah, got a, a wide range of films, everything from going back to It Happened One Night in 1934, and I think the most recent film we'd have done would have been um, Her by um, Spike Jones's film. So um, amazing! Yeah. yeah, that was a good Spike yeah. Jones, somebody who has. Um... Coppola Connections was at one point. Indeed. Sophia Coppola, so 
Yeah, there's um, a lot going on, a lot going on there, and obviously there's a, a nice link with lost trans, lost in translation there with uh, with uh, certain Miss Johansson's presence. But um, I think um, yeah, everything. Luckily, because she wasn't on camera, it was quite obvious what was being said. We didn't have to lip read the. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Well, Rich, yeah, thank you so much for coming and movie bratting and broing with me. Oh, thank you. I say, uh, you brought a knife, I brought a gun. and there we have it guys the fantastic rich nelson on the equally fantastic the untouchables um if you enjoyed this this little this little this little dalliance in the uh in the world of brand palmer Please be sure, if you're on the Patreon and you know somebody else who might enjoy what we're doing on over here, let them know, guys. It's always fun. It's always fun to have some more people. It gives me some more money. But it also, it also, it's also nice to know that there's a horde of people listening out there as well. I like to think that this is a nice extension to what we're doing on the main podcast and hopefully get to go to some interesting and more bizarre places than we sometimes do on there as well um as for next time on this dear here uh de Palmarama, we will be looking at the 1980 brian de palma paranoid thriller classic blowout and i have two fantastic guests lined up for that people who you may know from the main feed or um I don't know, you just may know them from podcast land or uh, Prince Charles Cinema Land. Uh, it is the fantastic Jonathan Foster of the Pod Charles Cinecast uh, fame and the always lovely, fantastic, and knowledgeable Becky Dart from the um, Point Horror podcast. Uh, the evolution of horror she pops up on loads of different stuff uh, she's on one of my personal favorite podcasts all the time which is uh the not just for kids podcast um yeah she's always, she's always joining russ on that which is always a lot of fun to hear and um yeah i can't wait to have this conversation this one's not recorded yet but i already i don't know putting together these these guest pairings i i, I feel like a mad scientist and i feel like this one is going to pay off and I'm going to have this beautiful beast of a of a Frankenstein monster of an episode for that one. And I think, yeah, I think Becky and Jonathan will get on well. But then again, I could be horribly wrong. Um, so, yeah, as always, guys, a shout about this. Share it on the socials when I, when I drop this episode. You, 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 know, you know the score. Let people know. Let's all have fun. Uh, remember to keep on movie bratting and broing and uh, yeah catch you next time hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash 
Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, a Town Limery, Maine, franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family. <laughs>